What's up? It's JB. Last week, we did a deep dive on stock splits, and I asked the question, where did all the stock splits go? There have been less than 10 this year so far, but 40% of S&P 500 companies are now trading above $100 per share. In the late 90s, there were 20 or 30 stock splits every month. Tesla came out after the bell on Tuesday night and announced a five-for-one stock split, almost like an answer to, uh, <laughs> to what I was talking about. Uh, the Tesla split will happen on August 31st. The reaction in the stock was a hilarious 15% rally in one day. It ran up $180 per share and hit $15.50 on no other news, stock split. So that's very 1999-ish. When you ask yourself, is this investors being stupid, saying the company is now 15% more valuable because they're just cutting more slices of the same cake? That could be. Or is this just traders all having the same idea about front-running the kind of investors who would buy it after the split when it makes the price look more affordable. And I did air quotes when I said affordable. So post-split, it'll be $310 a share. How many of the traders who bought in um, after the announcement are saying to themselves, I'm going to buy it because some other idiot is going to buy it after it splits. They're going to think it's cheaper. Uh, it's not so stupid because that actually has happened many times. It happened with Apple when they did the seven for one split six years ago, which we talked about. You know, people saw, oh, wait, Apple's back at 100. I'm buying it now. I didn't want to pay 680 for it, but I'm happy to pay, you know, 110 for it or whatever. So I don't know. Maybe, every, maybe everyone is playing the greater full game. I would also say if it's now that easy to add 15% to the value of your company, maybe every CEO should announce a split right now. Are there enough ass clowns? in this market today to keep it going. Should NVIDIA announce a split? Shopify? Microsoft? Alphabet? Amazon? Maybe we just go straight to the middleman and have SPY do a split. Save us, save us all the aggravation. Um, it's getting sillier by the minute. Speaking of ass clowns, JP Morgan put out a paper this week looking at whether or not retail traders, mom and pop traders, have the ability to move stocks or move the market. And they took all of the publicly available Robinhood data and replicated a famous study of retail traders from 1991 through the year 2000. This was a study by Barber and Odin. It's like a, a very well-known study where they tried to look at the behavior of people trading their own accounts. And I guess back then they had access to a couple of data sets from a few brokerage firms. Very hard to come by this stuff. Historically, it hasn't been shared. Here's what they found, JP Morgan found about today's retail traders. This is the biggest takeaway. Today's retail traders are exactly the same in behavior as their parents were in the 1990s. There is no difference in the way they act and the stocks they buy and the reasons why they buy those stocks. It's the same thing. So the apps are different, the websites are different, the tools are different, but it's no different in terms of like, what are they doing? So JP Morgan found that the Robinhood kids, like the traders of the previous generation, were most likely to buy stocks that have the following three traits. One, stocks that are in the news. So JP Morgan used Dow Jones Newswire headlines to quantify that. Uh, two, they buy stocks that are experiencing abnormally high volume, 
relative to their previous average volume. So in other words, these are the stocks that all of a sudden there's a lot of activity happening with. These are the stocks that everyone is buzzing about and that that attracts more people to talk about them and by extension end up buying or selling them. And then three, Robinhood traders tend to buy stocks that have recently posted extreme returns. This is obvious. So it's it's the recency bias. Um, big moves in the market, especially to the upside, attract a crowd of, of traders like a fireworks show attracts an audience on, on the 4th of July. So JP Morgan then asked the question, well, what happens if you buy the stocks that become held by the highest amount of Robinhood accounts? So in other words, they don't actually have dollar figure data. They can't tell you how much money Robinhood traders have put into these stocks they can just tell you the number of accounts that own them. And I guess they use that as a proxy for popularity. So if they have the number of accounts at Robinhood that are buying a stock, then they say, well, what happens to the price, right? Like, do these stocks outperform, underperform? It turns out that over the following week, when a stock joins that Robinhood list of the most owned uh, stocks, it does better than the overall market, right? Momentum feeding on itself. Um, but then past a week, that effect starts to fade. And they looked one year later, and there's no discernible difference between a stock that was on the Robinhood most popular list or any other stock. So two things about this. The first is that hedge funds have already been downloading this data and trading on it. So they were either w- riding the wave uh, or they were fading it, like like trading against it. But either way, this is now an already very old game. The second thing is that Robinhood has already announced they're going to take this data away from the public eye. They're going to stop sharing uh, their data feed with RobinTrack, for example, which is one of the sites people use to see activity on on the app. So uh, I guess I hope it was fun while it lasted. I have a packed show for you today. We're going to start with Dr. Ed Yardeni laying out the possibility for a roaring 2020s decade. A lot of the key ingredients are in place for things to go absolutely bonkers when the economy reopens. Then we're going to play What Are Your Thoughts with Batnick again. We're going to get into all the biggest topics on the street this week. We cover so much stuff there. Uh, But first, before we get into any of that, let's play the theme song. Welcome to The Compound Show with downtown Josh Brown. Josh is the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Josh or any podcast guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. As World War I came to an end, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 raced around the globe, infecting as many as 500 million people and killing an estimated 50 million. Shortly after it ran its course, the United States experienced one of the biggest booms in history, the Roaring Twenties. Dr. Ed Yardeni is the president of Yardeni Research. He served as a chief strategist on Wall Street, as an economist on both the New York Fed and the Treasury. He's been writing about the parallels and contrasts between the 1920s and the 2020s, and I've asked him to come on and talk to us about it. Ed, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. Okay. So, and I, I should mention also, you've got a new book this year, uh, Fed Watching for Fun and Profit, A Primer for Investors. How's, how's that been going? Very well. Um, I, I put it on Amazon uh, at the beginning of March, and uh, I, uh, I, I immediately regretted uh, not writing a book on uh, viruses instead. 
Um, but um, that's your next a couple book. of weeks later on March 23rd, uh, the Fed came in with uh, what I call QE forever. And uh, everybody started talking about don't fight the Fed. So the book's done extremely well because uh, people do want to go back and kind of study what the Fed has done in the past and why they're so important. Okay. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes for sure. So if people aren't aware of it, they can go pick that up. Um, I, I didn't get my copy, so I'll have to, uh, I'll have to go get a copy. Uh, so I loved what you wrote, uh, I guess over the weekend, you were talking about the fact that good times follow bad times. I don't think anyone would argue that Mm -hmm. we're in anything but bad times right now, even though the price action in the stock market may not fully reflect it, or at least not yet. It's, it's as bad of a time as I've ever seen. And I lived in New York during nine 11 and, uh, I'm no spring chicken. And I know you've seen a lot, you know, more than I have, but I, I don't ever remember anything like this, but I think it's an important message. And one of the things that I thought you did really well was just walk people through a very brief history of the, of, of the 1920s, which came after that pandemic period. And so I want to ask you, um, people in their wildest dreams living through 1918 probably never could have predicted all of the advances that would have come along very shortly after um, that horrendous uh, moment in time. You agree with that? Absolutely. Um, look, uh, we, we all uh, have a tendency to uh, believe that we live in unprecedented times. Uh, and maybe that's because uh, many of us don't spend enough time reading history, but uh, there is a precedent for what, what we're going through now. I mean, there, there have been uh, global pandemics before, but you know, one of the worst ones was um, the Spanish flu in 1918. And uh, that was uh, caused by and uh, dramatically exacerbated probably by soldiers coming back from the trenches. They were all sick. Uh, they, they were all frail. Uh, they were very vulnerable to diseases. And um, so uh, whatever, whatever came together, it was all horrible. And as you said, uh, uh, hundreds of uh, millions of people were infected and 50 million people died. So it was a nightmare. And back then, the world population was 1.8 billion. Uh, today, it's uh, 7.5 billion. And so far, we've had 20 million cases and 735,000 deaths around the world. So it, it pales by comparison. Uh, there, it was unprecedented times, World War I followed by the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, and I, I got to believe that anybody who lived through all that uh, had to be extremely depressed and uh, concerned that... Um, this was uh, the the new normal that it was going to be horrible for for the foreseeable future. So so Ed, you were you were saying that um, given the population size back then and the amount of people that we think were infected, it's a twenty eight percent infection rate and mm-hmm. a three percent death rate, and that's percentage of all people alive. Correct. Those are enormous numbers. Right. Right. Yeah, and uh, we're we we we're, we're much smaller numbers on a relative basis for, for sure. And even on an absolute basis, uh, you know, 500 million people infected back then, 20 million so far, and uh, 50 million people died back then and 735,000 have died so far in, in this pandemic. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we all feel uh, terrible. I mean, it's a, it's, it is a horrible time for, for all of us, uh, you know, uh, that are living through, through all this, but, you know, good times are followed by bad times and bad times are followed by good times. It's uh, uh, that's what history shows. And the uh, pandemic of, uh, 2000, of, of, of 2020 uh, should be followed by better times. And now we actually have uh, the possibility of uh, getting vaccines a lot, lot sooner. Uh, technological innovation is uh, 
certainly happening in the biotech area as it is in other areas. Uh, but that's where there's a similarity with the 1920s. The 1920s was an extraordinary uh, period of uh, great technological innovation. So we have World War I, we have the pandemic, then we have a recession, which was pretty severe at the time in the early 20s, uh, 2021. Uh, and by 22, we started coming out of it. And uh, the rest of the decade saw all these amazing innovations, electricity uh, proliferated, it allowed for urbanization. Let me ask you something that I was thinking about the other day. Yep. If you if you lived in 1919 or 1920 during during this um recession, were they even calling it recession back then widely? And if you were the average person in America, did you even know? Like were you even aware yeah. that the nation was in recession or did you just look at the situation in your own town, yeah. probably an agricultural community and just say it's not good? They didn't have social media, obviously, so uh, <laughs> they, they didn't have instantaneous recognition of what was going on and sometimes exaggeration of what's going on. But, uh, oh, they, they, they knew that uh, the economy was in a bad way. They, they knew that they'd had several years of uh, really just uh, horrible uh, uh, geopolitics, uh, horrible uh, health, and, uh, uh, and now an economic recession. They didn't call it recessions back then. They actually still use the word depression. Uh, it's yeah. just been in, uh, you know, since World War II that uh, economists uh, decided to soften up the term and, and call it recessions. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, the, the economy was in a bad way. A lot of soldiers came back uh, from uh, the trenches and had no jobs and they were sick and they died from uh, from the virus. So it was, it was horrible. Yeah. So now, But so now all of a sudden, it doesn't seem like there's one particular spark. I think electricity, if you had to point to one thing. Maybe yeah. was the the biggest um, sure. the biggest reason for the boom. But right. why don't you walk us through some of the stuff you were writing about sure. um, autos, electricity, etc. Well, yeah, ba- back then electricity was a big deal. So it was uh, actually improved plumbing, which allowed for urbanization. And uh, for example, uh, in 1920, 51 percent of the U.S. population lived in cities. That's up from only 23 percent in uh, 1870, and that couldn't have happened without. Uh, very important improvements in urban water supply systems, sewer systems, and it couldn't have happened without electricity, allowing people to have all sorts of appliances, to including lighting, of course. But it wasn't just electricity and plumbing; it was also the cars. Henry Ford built the Model T from 1908 to 1927. It was the first uh, car invented. It was uh, extremely popular and allowed people to uh, uh, to travel further than uh, than before. Uh, by the way, somewhere along the way, we also invite, inv- invented the traffic light because up to then, people were kind of like running each other over and crashing into each other. <laughs> th- there are all these kind of you know innovations that you never think about. Well, where did where did this come from and when did they start? I mean, just uh, how about food? I mean, people used to. Uh, eat stuff that they bought at uh, just op- open air markets. I don't know if it was as bad as some of these open air markets that we have uh, now causing us some grief in, uh, in China, but um, they were bad. Uh, a lot of the food was just bad, but then refrigerated cars came along the way, refrigerators in the homes. And then we had uh, all this processed food that uh, maybe is. Yeah. There's a, there's yeah. a, there's a Steinbeck, there's a Steinbeck novel East of Eden. Right. And I don't know if you remember the father, um, toward the toward the end of the book, he starts inventing the refrigerated train car, rail car. Yeah, as a huge. And he's 
and he's going to send vegetables and fruits from the San Joaquin Valley in California all the way to Boston so yep. that people can eat lettuce in the winter. And that's like a huge innovation that that they're working on then. Well, look, I, I don't know for sure that uh, the innovations, the technologies that we know exist today and that are going to proliferate are going to be as big a deal as electricity, even as just simple plumbing. Uh, but they, they certainly could be. I mean, uh, we're spending billions of dollars right now on uh, a vaccine and uh, that's uh, kind of a Manhattan project. You know, the Manhattan project uh, uh, was a, a tremendous effort to build the atom bomb. Well, now we're spending billions of dollars to build uh, bombs that can uh, destroy vaccines. And uh, we may very well come up with a technology that allows us to uh, expedite vaccine creation next time we have another vac- uh, virus that we just uh, uh, don't have an immediate solution for. So uh, the healthcare front seems to be one area where we could see a, a tremendous amount of progress uh, resulting from this. So bad news uh, kind of setting the stage for, for good news. Uh, but uh, we also know about uh, all these other technologies. Uh, uh, look, uh, it's conceivable that because of the virus, uh, more people will decide that they don't want to, we make a de-urbanization, de- if there is such a word, uh, that people decide they want to move back. Uh, uh, more people want to move to the suburbs and to rural areas. Uh, that could obviously be a, a big boom for housing and appliances and furniture. So that, that could actually stimulate uh, a lot of economic uh, uh, growth. And, and then cars. I mean, car, people are going to need more cars if they move to the burbs and to rural areas. And uh, we are certainly in the cusp of having a radical uh, technological change in the auto market with uh, electric vehicles and autonomous driving vehicles. So that's a tremendous amount of potential demand for housing and autos that uh, could uh, create the roaring 2020s. Yeah. So, so I want to go back to that because um, one of the points that you make is how it's not just that one technology comes along like the automobile. It's all of the things that then get layered on top of that, that produce a boom. So this is you, you say when people went out and about in their model T's, they got hungry, their options were few but the first fast food chain opens its doors in 1919. That's A and W. And right. then White Castle comes along in 1921 with the hamburger stand. And then Howard Johnson's, which I guess would be like a diner today, 1925. Um, so that that's like one, one of those things, quick service restaurant would not have come along if there weren't a need for it produced by that prior technology. You do the same thing with um, Montgomery Ward and Sears the catalogs fulfilling 100,000 orders a day, which then precipitates the need for a parcel post and people who will deliver packages. Correct. So you're, you're saying that we could see a version of that in the decade to come. If we de-urbanized, for example, then all of a sudden people that were taking mass transit into the city, they're going to need a different way to, to get around. And maybe that's autonomous electric vehicles, et cetera. Sure. Um, and look, uh, there's already uh, discussions going on about taking some of these uh, vacant malls or mall spaces and converting them into fulfillment centers uh, by the online uh, right. uh, retail retailers. So uh, we're, we're pretty inventive. And, uh, you know, when, when people get really depressed about the future, obviously there's, there's problems that are, are that are causing that uh, concern. And, uh, what always seems to save the day is technological innovation. Uh, technology uh, comes and uh, solves problems, and it solved uh, lots of problems in the 1920s. Uh, and, and again, if uh, if people are urbanizing uh, the, at a rapid pace, technology solved the problem of 
how do you make that comfortable for them and how, how do you keep that uh, process going? So, so I, I love this quote and you included it here and it's from your, your book in, in 2018, which was an autobiography right. of, of your career. Um, but I, I just, I want to do the whole quote and, uh, because uh, I think it's I think it's so important. You know, a lot of people think a lot of people think about economics and they think about scarcity and you look at it the other way. And I always have to. I couldn't put it into as eloquent um, of a statement as this, though. This is this is uh, Dr. Ed Yardani quote. Economics is about using technology to increase everyone's standard of living. Technological innovations are driven by the profits that can be earned by solving the problems posed by scarce resources Free markets provide the profit incentives to motivate innovators to solve this problem. As they do so, consumer prices tend to fall. Driven by their innovations, the market distributes the resulting benefits to all consumers. From my perspective, economics is about creating and spreading abundance, not distributing scarcity. I think that dis- that scarcity mindset um, is on the way out. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent now as it did amongst people perhaps in the 70s and 80s when resource prices were prohibitively high. Um, so I, I think that we've gotten that uh, into our mindset as an investor class. So now you get into all of these stats about technology capital spending. So that spending is is to answer questions and solve problems and create this abundance you're talking right. about. So what what do these numbers mean when we read about R&D? Um, making records, and we read about it as a percentage of total capital spending, et cetera. What should we think about that? Well, I, I think uh, it, it means that when we look at uh, the capital spending numbers today, they're really not that comparable uh, to the uh, capital spending 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, the technology uh, has become a bigger and bigger uh, part of capital spending. So in the uh, Nominal GDP numbers, uh, not adjusted for inflation, but in terms of what people are spending. And keep in mind that in a lot of technology, prices go down, they, they don't go up. Right. Uh, but high-tech spending uh, on uh, IT equipment, uh, software, and R&D rose to uh, a record uh, $1.3 trillion, uh, during the second quarter of this year. Now, that's at an annual rate, but uh, that's the way we usually uh, look at it. In a crisis – we're, we're producing practice. a record tech spend. Correct. and uh, So important. Well, it's very important. And uh, obviously, technology uh, companies have uh, uh, provided us with lots of uh, hardware and software that uh, has been uh, very helpful in uh, getting through this uh, crisis for most of us, especially those of us who are fortunate enough uh, to be able to, to work from home, to use uh, uh, you know, Zoom technology and, and the like. Uh, but uh, the, the bottom line is in the second uh, quarter that uh, high-tech uh, spending, including, again, equipment, software, and R&D, accounted uh, for 50% of total capital spending, all-time record high. And uh, by the way, that may actually be a lowball uh, numbers because uh, there's a lot of uh, industrial equipment that includes embodies a lot of technological innovations w- w- within the machine. Uh, so, um, I, I would say that, uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, a, a record amount of capital spending being attributable to technology and technologies, uh, I think is going to, uh, lead to more productivity and more productivity leads to more prosperity. Productivity is really what drives 
um, inflation-adjusted wages. And so I, I think uh, that's another reason to think that the like uh, like the 1920s, the 2020s could see uh, tremendous improvements in uh, standards of living. So when Americans spend 50.1% of total capital spending um, in, in nominal GDP terms, when they do that, most of that money finds its way into the U.S. economy because there's a mostly U.S. tech giants are the recipients of, of, of that spending. To a large extent, that's absolutely correct. Yes. I mean, Which one of goes, the areas where we excel is technology for sure. So that goes a long way to explaining why the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ are where they are. Absolutely. Okay. And we're very fortunate to have that technology component to our markets versus yeah, other but, but, global but it's, markets. It's, it's not good luck. It's, uh, it's just a matter of free market capitalism. I, uh, we still have enough of it. Uh, to, to create, as as you, as you said, uh, in, mentioned in the quote that uh, of what I said in my book, is uh, technology solve problems, and if uh, if if the market is allowed to operate and create incentives for entrepreneurs to solve those problems with technology, they'll do it, uh, and they'll get rich and make the rest of us feel uh, much better with uh, the uh, technologies that were that they provide us. Um, but uh, on the other hand, that also tends to uh, create uh, social tension because uh, uh, it, it does uh, exacerbate in- income inequality. But uh, look, I, I think uh, the twenty when you have a when you have a Manhattan Project esque uh, search for a vaccine or treatments or both, there is some element of the government sparking a, a technological boom, for example, in biotech. Correct. So. So there's a role for both to play, and yeah. hopefully they'll 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 work together. Yeah, there always has been a role, and uh, you know we we don't live in an economy of uh, obviously of uh, pure entrepreneurial capitalism. It's uh, some com- it's really a combination of uh, pure entrepreneurial capitalism and crony capitalism, which is right. big business uh, and 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 big government uh, w- working together. And uh, also, let's face it, there's. Clearly, uh, socialism in terms of uh, government support and subsidies uh, for incomes. So I did a whole episode about the irony of the Trump administration presiding over the beginning of UBI. Right. And I know there's, I know there's been social, uh, social security back to FDR. I understand it's not really the beginning, but um, it really does feel that the Treasury has created something that will be very hard to take away. From yeah. my perspective, and I'm curious what you think about the extraordinary payments to taxpayers, direct deposits, the right. addition of federal unemployment insurance, et cetera. How are we going to pull this back? Do we have UBI now forever? Well, UBI, of course, is universal basic income. And uh, even before uh, the pandemic hit us and before the government provided uh, checks and uh, extra uh, unemployment insurance benefits, uh, there was some discussion of UBI, and it's mostly by technology people wondering, you know, what's the future going to look like when everything is made by robotics and with artificial intelligence? And uh, maybe, you know, the the future uh, is is now, if you look at Japan, Japan is a country where they've kind of run out of workers because of the uh, geriatric demographic profile there. We're all getting older around the world. Uh, we're not having uh, enough kids. Fertility rates have dropped. So uh, that's kind of the demographic outlook for us. Uh, we're going to have uh, fewer working age uh, people. And uh, it's it's conceivable that uh, we may actually wind up taxing robots and, uh, you know, people who own robots and and automatic uh, automated systems and using those uh, uh, 
tax revenues to provide some uh, basic income uh, to people who just can't quite make it in this uh, brave, brave new world. Uh, maybe you know, provide them with enough income to f- find what uh, w- what they can do on a gainful employment uh, situation. But uh, so you you reference Brave New World, which is Aldous Huxley. But another book comes to mind, uh, Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut, where he envisioned this already. Um, I think he wrote this in the fifties, mm-hmm. but he was talking, he was talking about a society where the robots do everything. They've been trained by humans. And then the humans have been put essentially in, in villages to sit around all day. And then you had this managerial class right. that runs the whole thing. I'm not sure that that's definitely the, the only way this could go. Another no. way this could go is everyone becomes an artist, but the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I, I I think uh what all this does is uh kind of forces all of us to think about where is this all going and how do we we make it work out to our benefit. I, I think um all in all we'll we'll put it all together in ways that um unbalance create a a great deal of uh prosperity if, as long as we don't screw it up with uh with politics, uh domestic or or geopolitical uh, geopolitical issues. So I wanna go into now uh the twenty twenties. And why don't you tell me what you think is a similar setup, obviously the pandemic, um, and then tell me what you think uh, are some of the differences. And I I want the audience to think about whether or not those differences can be overcome and we can have a boom decade. Well, I I think uh, in terms of similarities, we've sort of discussed the the technological uh, innovations now. Okay, so we have all that now. We we have all that down. It's not like you know, this is suddenly happening. We've, we've, we, we know that there are a lot of technologies that have come, come been developed over the past few years and are just going to really proliferate uh, during the decade, decade ahead. In terms of the differences, um, I guess the concern uh, is really on the political side. I mean, we, we have had a, a president so far, uh, Donald Trump, who has uh, cut taxes and deregulated, and that's very similar to what we saw with Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge uh, in the 1920s. Uh, they were both believers in uh, deregulation and uh, low taxes. Uh, however, Trump is uh, much uh, has got really no problem with big government. Uh, both uh, uh, Warren Harding and uh, Calvin Coolidge uh, were uh, uh, against uh, big government, uh, but it's here to stay. I mean, that's not going away. It's going to get bigger. Uh, we have modern monetary theory, which basically is a, a manifesto for how uh, fiscal and monetary policy can be used by government to get bigger in our economy, uh, hopefully for our benefit. Uh, but um, I, I think a big difference is uh, government's much bigger than, than it was in the 1920s. And uh, whether it's Trump getting re, a, a real uh, another four years or uh, Biden uh, being the next president, um, I, I think uh, government is here to stay, uh, and uh, free market capitalists might get pretty depressed about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, as I said, and as we agree, uh, it's it's been a mixed economy for a while. And when uh, since uh, since both you and I and our audience are interested in the stock market, it's not necessarily bearish uh, for the uh, for, for the for the stock market. Um, this this kind of outlook. So you you say that Trump may have actually set the stage for bigger deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, a universal basic income, and the fiscal and monetary excesses championed by advocates of modern monetary theory. So, modern monetary theory—we're not going to—we're not going to go into a wormhole on that. Um, 
I, I'm sure you have many thoughts. Uh, I know it's very controversial, but it's just this idea that deficits aren't particularly important and that we can spend a lot more money, um, debt, debt fueled money than, than we originally thought sure. we could. Um, is that, that seems to be the takeaway by both political parties though, right. of the pandemic response. Would you agree? Absolutely. And that's a big difference between the 1920s where conservatism was, uh, in vogue, uh, certainly in Washington, uh, and small government was uh, uh, widely uh, embraced as the way we should go, and let you know uh, the, the business of Americans is is business, is uh, what uh, Calvin Coolidge said. Um, this time around, as you said, I think it's kind of uh, become um, a, a standard uh, belief uh, on, on all sides of the political spectrum that. Uh, the government's here to stay, and uh, it's probably going to get bigger. So if we do have a roaring 20s, um, perhaps income growth will keep pace for for more Americans than the last time we had a boom, um, which I, I suppose was the housing boom? Or You know, once you get into the income inequality, wealth inequality, uh, standard of living issues, it becomes extremely political. I, I, I like to start with the data before I start out wow. with a political opinion. And the right. data actually shows that, uh, you know, uh, since 2008, 2000, actually since the mid-1990s, uh, inflation-adjusted real wages uh, have been increasing about 1% per year, uh, which is a pretty nice increase in the standard of living. And that's right. been fairly, fairly well dist- distributed. Uh, it's just what's happened and what's so visible is the rich have gotten a lot richer. Uh, but... Uh, uh, everybody else isn't doing, uh, wasn't doing all that badly. And we were doing real well until we got hit by this uh, pandemic, and that just exacerbated uh, income inequality, wealth inequality, and, uh, and the political partisanship that, that follows from all that. But I, I would say, objectively speaking, uh, there's no particular reason why uh, once this all sorts out and we get over this virus, uh, that the technological-led uh, uh, boom in productivity uh, wouldn't uh, be pretty well distributed at creating um, prosperity for, for people on a more equal basis. Even if people end up doing a different job than the one that they were doing prior to the pandemic. Yeah, and, and, and not all of those necessarily are, you know, writing uh, poems and plays, uh, which is, this, which is fine uh, uh, if, if that's what you want to do. But uh, I think uh, as always before, we found that technological disruption uh, does disrupt a lot of people's lives in terms of, uh, their uh, their jobs, uh, but it creates a lot a lot new and better opportunities, uh, and I think that'll be the case uh, again. Well, I'm certainly rooting for that to be the outcome, um, uh, Doctor Ed. Really appreciate you coming on the show. You, We're going to link to uh, your new book, and hopefully, everyone will go out and buy that. And uh, I think uh, if people want to find your writing more frequently, you've got you've got uh, a way for people to subscribe to your thoughts or. Yeah, they can go on the website, yardeni.com, and sign up for a four-week trial. Uh, okay. There's also blog.yardeni.com, and I'm uh, I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit. Okay, very cool. So, so we'll we'll link to that. We'll let everyone check that out. Ed, thanks again. I'm so glad you're uh, you're doing well. So glad thanks. you continue to write. I learn something every week when I read your stuff. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Hey guys, it's Downtown Josh Brown. Welcome back to an all new edition of What Are Your Thoughts? I'm here with Michael Batnick. Michael doesn't know what I'm going to ask him, and I don't know what he's going to ask me, 
Play along with us in the comments below. Tell us your thoughts. Let's get into it. All right, Mike, I'm going first. I want to talk about your post-market surprises um, and and just this idea that you should expect the unexpected. Um, I, I was curious about your thoughts when you went through the research. Did you find what you were expecting? Um, because while you point out that over every 10-year rolling period throughout history, you had a 95% chance at seeing a positive return, the ranges were all over the place. Is that what you expected to see and did anything jump out at you? Yeah, I, I wasn't surprised at that. I guess what surprised me was how shallow the lower bound was. I wasn't really thinking about what it was going to be, but it was negative 5% annualized for 10 years, which is- That's the worst That's the worst that you saw in, in, in the research. Yeah, which is bad. Uh, that means you're down quite a bit of money, um, more, than, right. more, more than cut in half. But I guess I thought it would be worse than that. And the point that I was really getting at was the limits of using market history as a guide that is firmly planted or, or baked in cement for the future. Because- Worst case, we don't know what the worst case is. We know what the historical worst case is, but shit happens all the time that has never happened before. And I think you just got to be prepared for a wide range of outcomes, which is not terribly helpful. But for example, stocks never fell 30% in five weeks. So if you were looking at right. history, what are the odds of that happening? You would say zero. And then it happened. We don't have enough history to really calculate odds. And then in terms of like, Market regimes, when you're looking at non-overlapping 10-year periods, you don't have a whole lot of history. It's not like we've got a thousand years where we say, okay, we've seen this before. We've seen that before. Like we've seen it all. We haven't seen it all. Right. So you, you can't say, okay, here's what happened the last 50 times the market fell 30% in five weeks. Right. E- even even then, I don't think you would be doing science. Um, it's, still, it's still interpretation. But the reason why I think this is so helpful is because when you're building a portfolio – or you're recommending a portfolio to an investor, um, having that information in front of them so that they understand why you're not betting on one particular outcome. So like we, you sit with a client and they're like, well, I'm really worried about inflation. Build me a portfolio that's going to factor in uh, that and get rid of my bonds. Or I really think there's going to be another bear market in the fall when COVID comes back or whatever. Their reasons are fine, but then just showing them, look, that could happen. But then here are all these other things that statistically could also happen, um, and we have to plan for everything. We can't we can't place one bet and hope to get it right. Even if we get it right once, can we do that all the time? Well, I just I think don't know that when when you're looking at, at market history, looking at the range of outcomes as opposed to what the average is is a much more useful exercise. I think that's the point that I was driving at. I totally agree. I thought it was a great post. What do you got? All right. I want to talk about an idea that I've been kicking around that I'm going to call the investor's dilemma. And I think that everybody goes through this at some point in their life where you have people that just are always- Are you okay? Are you okay? I'm great. Thank you. you. going through something? Okay. Where, where you, have, you have people that are always dismissive of the next idea. And then you have people that are always chasing the, the hot idea. So on the one hand- you don't want to be like the investor who was just completely dismissive of the internet in 1998. You don't want to be that person. On the other hand, you definitely don't want to be the investor that bought telecom stocks in December of 1999. So right. how do you balance those two competing ideas, which whether it's cryptocurrency or the hot stocks today or, or whatever, I mean, there's always something. Can I be honest with you? 
there's a really simple answer. Stop loss. You seem stunned. Why isn't that the answer? Well, because you, you say to yourself, I don't think that's, you I mean, to yourself, I mean, that's one answer. I don't think it's a great answer. You get stopped out a million times. It's the easiest answer. Right. So I think it's the easiest, I think it's the easiest answer. You say, you say to yourself, all right, Shopify, I get it. There are 50 million small businesses in America and Canada. Forget about Europe, Asia. There are 50 million small businesses and they all want to fight back against Amazon, but they can't obviously do it. Um, so here comes this company that is offering logistics, shipping, fulfillment, um, the shopping cart on on the website, the payment gateway, the the email uh, back and forth with customers. Like this company is going to arm mi- tens of millions of businesses who want to sell and have a competitive e-commerce uh, situation compared to the big guys. This is a brilliant idea. However, it's 40 times sales, whatever. So you say to yourself, I don't want to dismiss that this company has the ability to be enormous uh, and extremely important in the economy of the future. So I want to be in it. But I'm aware that A, I'm overpaying like everyone else is. And B, this could be a bubble and I could be buying in the, in the ninth inning. Um, so how do you balance that? Well, you get long. Position sizing is another thing that you can consider. But just use a stop. And if you are the last idiot to buy it, which is going to happen to you in your life, the market will tell you. Now, counterpoint, you get st- you get stopped out, then you have a harder decision. All right, now's the time to buy it. Like, and you could, to your point, you could do that the whole way down. No, so no, no. I think or, or a little, you, a little- could, you could do that the whole way up. So the counter is that all of these best stocks, I mean, forget about getting cutting half. If uh, a stop loss is useless if you set it down 50% below. But Right. It happens multiple times though. So that's the thing. So I don't know that a stop loss is the right answer. It's an answer. I think it's maybe better than nothing, but these things correct all the time to varying degrees. So what's the right amount? So I, I've been in NVIDIA since 2015 and I think I've been cut in half maybe twice, but I've seen more than a dozen 20% drawdowns in that stock. Right. So, so, so stop losses would have killed you. The way I thought about NVIDIA was that I'm going to take full risk here because I don't want to get stopped out. Um, because I had that conviction. So it wasn't a dilemma for me. Um, it doesn't mean that I had to have been right. Like I'm just saying in hindsight, this was one that worked. Um, there were other things I wrote down that never recovered. But I think like at the end of the day, that's why there's risk involved. The only reason why you could own a stock that goes up 4X or 5X is because you're willing to sit through a 50% drawdown. So the dilemma might just be a time frame thing and a style thing. If you're a trader and you want to be in these names, I think you need a stop loss. And if you're an investor, I think you need to say, how much risk am I willing to take? And then size your position accordingly. But I don't, I don't think there's ever like an answer. I also think people change depending on where they are in their lives and what experiences they've had. And, you know, as every investor matures, they start to realize, okay, this would be great if I own this sector and I'm right and it really works out, but the consequences would be worse if I'm wrong. So I'm just going to watch it happen. That I mean, that's a mature attitude. Maybe it's not the secret to huge returns to to pass on everything, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Do you? I just think it's a it's so, a it's a difficult question. I agree. I, don't, I listen. I wish I had the answer. Um, in a similar vein, I wanted to ask you about 
I have this thing where I feel like the argument of fundamentals versus technicals is wrong. I think right now the real argument is technicals versus macro. And I just, I jotted down some notes about what I was thinking. I might write about this, but um, I was saying like everyone always compares technicals to fundamentals. Um, But it seems to me that if you look at technicals versus macro, most of the people who study and follow macro data and are really into like all of these economic reports and the prices of currencies and oil, um, it just seems to me like they've been on the wrong side of the market for a really long time. I'm sure I'm overgeneralizing and that doesn't apply to everyone. But what we've seen in the last five, 10 years, when the data, the economic data starts slowing down, stocks start rallying. Um, and when the economic data starts to recover, all we end up with is lower bond yields. Like these things are broken. They're not working together. Um, we had deflation fears in 2015, 2016. Um, all that did was put a floor in for the price of gold. So, to me, it seems like the macro stuff is almost all counterintuitive, whereas technical literally is going with where prices are headed and not trying to fade that. Um, what's your take on macro versus technicals? Well, I think the reason why technicals get compared to fundamentals is because you're talking usually about where do, where do I start? I want to learn about investing. Where do I start? Nobody starts with macro. That's There's too much to swallow, too much to wrap your arms around. Um, yeah. So I, but I think that a lot of the macro people use technicals. Okay. That's a fair point. Um, but the people that are coming up with an opinion on the economy and then distilling that down into an idea about what the stock market's going to do how, how, are, clear, are not using technicals. But how could you do macro without looking at charts? If you are going to trade on macro, do you have to have the belief, the opposite of being a technician? Do you have to have, so a technician would say the market is smart market knows where it's going and the trend is the trend. Um, And then they're looking for divergences where opinions are changing and price still hasn't yet or vice versa. The macro person is basically saying everyone in the world is an idiot um, if they're a contrarian. Everyone in the world is wrong. And my opinion of what's about to happen in the world is right. And that's almost the opposite of technical analysis. but But this is very specific. I think you're talking about the macro people that sell newsletters because that's one of the okay. appeals. So I don't know that macro hedge funds are actually think that everyone's an idiot. I think that some of the stuff that we read from people that are selling us a, a newsletter service are are of that vein because they have to they have to sell something. That's fair. So so you're saying part of the appeal of a newsletter is somebody telling you why you're going to know something that everyone else doesn't know. Huge, right? And a technician, but a technician is not going there. A technician is basically saying, "Here's what's happening." We either think it's going to continue to happen or there's a divergence and we think it's about to change. All right. I want it's, to, it's, it's very different to me. I want to ask you about something that I think is remarkable. This is from the vice president of Exxon. Exxon has a long history of providing a reliable and growing dividend. A large portion of our shareholder base has come to view that dividend as, as a source of stability in their income. And we take that very seriously. So Exxon is currently yielding around 8%. They've paid a dividend for, I think, almost 40 years. And what they're doing is uh, they're suspending the matching program to their 401k, which matches employee contributions who make who contribute at least 6%, 6% of their salary with a 7% company contribution. So they're suspending yeah. their 401k match to preserve their dividend. 
Thoughts? Are they lowering the dividends? I don't believe so. It? So I, I think like dividends can be a trap for for corporations. And you'll notice like Berkshire Hathaway never paid a dividend. And uh, some of the best performing stocks of all time um, weren't, I mean, they might've had small dividends, but they weren't like, hey, we're a dividend stock, buy us for that reason. Altria, Procter & Gamble, there, there's some of that that are on that list. Sure. I think what happens though is you get you get trapped and like you could, you could have a revolt on your hands because there are shareholders that like set their watch by the fact that every quarter, uh, four times a year, they're going to get this cash payment. And I, I here's what I would say though. I would say modern financial advisors who are building income portfolios, I think are starting to realize that they have to just focus on total return. And if you have to um, help a retiree fund their retirement with cash from proceeds of a sale rather than like go all in on the highest riskiest dividends i think it's more explicable to clients today i think i, I think they they understand the difference um and then the other thing with dividends is you know obviously we know that the tax consequences suck and really aren't helping anyone especially when the choice is dividends versus buybacks but i almost feel like there is a portion of the population that are religious about it like it's like a sacred thing. Like, what do you, what do you mean you're cutting the dividend or you, you're not going to pay the dividend? So I do think Exxon has a point. I mean, it's ugly um, to to take money from employees to to prioritize shareholders in a time like this. But I kind of understand it. They have to manage for their shareholders at the end of the day. Um, but it's it's a trap, and uh, I'd be interested to see if they can maintain is eight percent right now. I'd be interested to see if they can maintain that um, for for much longer without some change in the dynamics of the oil industry. I bet you they can't. Uh, and I, I, last thing I would say, when I started in the industry, there was still like 15 or 20 steel stocks. Like Bethlehem Steel was still trading and Ishpat Steel and all these companies that don't exist anymore. And they were dividend stocks. Like steel companies were were similar to oil companies. They were reliably paying dividends. That's not a thing that exists anymore. So I think eventually, if you're a commodity-based, even if you're a blue chip, like reality comes for you. And that doesn't seem like something that I would want to bet on, um, that, that dividend. Because who knows what they have to cut next to keep it going. Like what What would you say if you owned or, or, or Or adding on more debt to keep it going. They could do that very, very inexpensively now. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of firms do, are doing that. What would you say if you were an Exxon shareholder and they said they were cutting CapEx by 30%? Um, but preserving the dividend, you would be like, well, how are you going to pay the dividend three years from now, you know, with, with no new discoveries and no new production. So, uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of dividend targeted investing. I'm fine with dividend stocks. I reinvest them in, in my own portfolio, perfectly fine, but owning something just because it's a high yield, especially in a declining industry like fossil fuels, it just seems like, it seems like more of a headache than it's worth as a, as an investor. So you'd rather um, much rather take like four percent from Coke or three percent from Verizon or whatever. Uh, yeah, and that doesn't mean that those those are no, nothing's guaranteed, right? Um, actually, if if I'm building a portfolio right now f- with just yield in mind, like if that's just what I'm doing, I'm probably buying the preferred shares of banks. I think they've turned the banks into quasi regulated utilities. Their balance sheets have never been better. Um, they'll definitely be challenged in this recession to some extent, but 
those preferred yields to me are a safer bet than an oil dividend, even in the biggest oil company in the world. Or I one would, of the biggest oil companies in the world. I just buy Tesla and sell one share every day for income or fractional share. Dividend? A fraction of is a that share. A Tesla, is that a Tesla dividend? Peel off a, st- a share every quarter? It's yielding uh, 150%. It's incredible. <laughs> awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you about Triple Q's versus Spider. Did you see Ben on uh, Bob Pisani's CNBC show yesterday? I did, but I had him on mute. No, I'm well, just kidding. It was, I, I didn't a, it was only a phoner, so that wouldn't have worked <laughs> out well. So Ben called into Bob Pisani's show, and uh, our boy Tom Lydon was on there. And they were talking about flows this year. And it looks like it's going to be a record, another record-breaking year for ETF flows. Not a surprise. But this was surprising. $12 billion in net new money came into the queues, while $23 billion left the SPY. That's not surprising. So, uh, the, it's not. Well, I guess knowing investor behavior, it shouldn't be. But the queues are like the new spiders. Well, what about the other S&P ETFs? Because I think that SPY has been having outflows. Like IVV is is right on, is probably past it and 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 VOO. Uh, think, and VOO. So I would be right. curious to see what the flow. So I think that might be an SPY specific story. What's the problem with it? Four basis points is too much. No, I think People it's need to pay one. I think it's nine basis. How much po- is it? I think it's nine basis points, which is hardly backbreaking. Um, but what can you buy IVV for? I think four. I think VOO. Right, so- I think VOO is three or four. So I think that's more of a of a State Street story. So on $10 billion, that's kind of a big deal. But on a million dollars, probably not a big deal. No, it's, it's, um, it's effectively zero dollars. So I do think, though, that uh, the Qs are becoming an, like a new S&P for certain investors. And you just say, like, I just want the growth segment of the market and I'm an indexer. I just, I just don't want a portfolio filled with oil stocks and banks because they never do anything to the upside and they only uh, hurt the portfolio in, in a down market. I think that's an attitude that people are starting to adopt and it's all recency bias, but whatever. Like I understand that if you've been in the market five years, that's all you've ever seen. Um, 117 billion into fixed income ETFs. What the hell are these people chasing? Uh, price appreciation. Uh, on on what? On, I mean, they're buying corporate bonds. They're buying treasuries. They're buying treasuries at no yield. Like they... Is that a fear trade? Well, what if this is front-running the Fed? Like there was monster flows into HYG uh, relative to the total size of the fund. I think 60% of the fund of the total assets of the fund have come in in the last 12 months. So I think right. a lot of this is Fed-driven. Um, so the Fed, the Fed is buying LQD. The Fed is buying investment-grade corporate for some reason that I can't really understand. And they're not, they're not buying a little bit. No. It doesn't move the needle. Why bother? So for some reason, I can't understand the Fed is buying the bonds of companies that look like they're well-financed for the next 100 years. Just shut up and buy. <laughs> Stop asking questions. I don't, I don't really. And then, uh, all right, so so you're not surprised at, at any of the flow data? Not really. What's interesting is that GLD has taken in the most assets over the last 12 months. And I did this thing while we're talking about it. So I looked at the total assets in GLD and IAU, the two biggest gold-backed ETFs. Today, compared to 2011, at the peak of their price. So in 2011, if you remember, I know you remember, GLD passed SPY, and, and it was the biggest ETF in the world. So right yeah. now, right now, GLD- I wrote a post about it that week. Did you? Oh, yeah, you did. Yeah. I, we, we looked at that the other day. GLD and IAU are 35% bigger in terms of total assets than they were at the peak in 2011. However, 
if you could, what I missed was, and I, I forget who tweeted this, maybe it was Balchunas. If you look at uh, those two relative to the rest of the ETF market, they've shrunk because the ETF market has grown so much. So right now they're two and a half percent of the total ETF market. In 2011, they were 10% of the market. Wow. And the minor ETF is so, is so tiny. That's, t- it's that's not tiny. even worth mentioning. All right. Last right. thing I want to talk about. So we're seeing a rotation. Everybody's talking about it. Uh, the beaten up stocks, the reopening trade, basically. So casinos, airlines, cruises, uh, transports, small relative to large. Tech is finally pulling back the stay-at-home stocks, Peloton, Wayfair, you know the names. Is Does this have legs or is, or is this going to fizzle out in three days? Do you remember what happened in the middle of May through the middle? Oh, of I June? remember it fizzled. It, it it didn't fizzle out. It crashed. It crashed. Yeah, it was an amazing. It was an amazing reversion trade, yep. though. Yep. Like if you were smart enough to have seen it coming, I don't know. I own so I own Berkshire Hathaway. I I looked. At, I, I saw the stock run. It was like one eighty nine. It ran up to two hundred into the uh, into the earnings, and now it's like two twelve or whatever it is. Um, and I. When you look at that company and its earnings and what's going on in their businesses, pretty much everything sucks, um, with the exception of the fact that they're the largest well, shareholder. Forget about that. Let's just talk about price for a second. So, like, if you look at small relative to large, it's got legs, and if you look at small value relative to large, it looks like it is really trying to bottom. Well, if if you think there's a vaccine coming this fall before the election, which is what I think, then you could probably continue to make money in those stocks, but. Um, there will be scary news along the way and there will be delays and, and delays in approval and all these things. And they'll probably hit those stocks again. So I wouldn't be like, oh, my God, I have to get into a cruise line now. <laughs> uh, and I could, I could be wrong about that. Uh, but we've had these we've had these profit taking moments. I will say that a couple of the high flying tech names like have what? gotten really whacked. Um, DocuSign. DataDog. Oh no no! Here's one I wanted to mention. Um, Fastly. What's that? So FSLY FSLY is like one of the poster children Yikes. for like this whole cloud computing thing. Does not look, look at healthy. the chart on this. Yeah, it's terrible. It's like the worst thing I've ever seen. So maybe something has changed. Well, it, also, it went from twenty to one twenty. So no, I understand that, but that price action tells looks you terrible. It looks terrible. There are people that are leaving that stock and never coming back. It looks terrible. So and it's on an earnings report. It's fundamental. It's not. It's not a rogue wave that came out of nowhere. It's macro. The company couldn't match the expectations. <laughs> it's macro. All right. Let us know what you guys think uh, of all the topics we discussed. As I said, we love your comments and feedback. Um, go ahead and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Give us a like if you like what we're doing here. We will be back with What Are Your Thoughts in two weeks. Um, thank you guys so much for all the subscriptions and for all the likes. We really appreciated all the feedback. Michael and I will be seeing you very soon. Thanks for listening. Check us out at thecompoundnews.com for daily investing and market insights. You can watch all of our videos at youtube.com slash thecompoundrwm. Talk to you next week.